The Start. On Demand. On Demand. When the weather has been as lousy as it's been for the last few days, the last few weeks, how can we fight back against the inevitable gloomy feelings we all experience? Also today, Jugmeet Singh says, why is that even a question when it comes to getting water into indigenous communities and ending their boil water advisories? Not every hero wears a cape. That's the message for Fire Prevention Week, which is on this week. Do you have a fire escape plan for your home? And Bob Irving joins us to weigh in on the third straight loss for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Monday, October 7th podcast for The Start. Loren, uh, between the weather, the bomber loss on Saturday night, the Jets loss last night, it's a little bit uh, gloomy around here. You this want me to just go back to bed? Is that? I feel like that's what we're taking. I'm just right uh, now. suggesting just... a lot of people might be feeling like that's what they want to do today. Oh, it's it been a, it was such a brutal weekend. First of all, for the weather, like a lot of people I know were heading out to their campsites or their seasonals to close things down early for the year. I know a lot of people like to go till Thanksgiving, but the weather just hasn't given you any sense that you can get in any more good times outdoors, at least, you know, with it being so wet. We had a co-worker send us pictures yesterday of her camper kind of underwater in St. Mallow off the Rat River just from all the rain, right? So the rain's depressing and uh, the lack of sun is depressing. The bomber's nonsense was nonsense. That's nonsense. All it was nonsense. Just a nonsense game. <laughs> well, let's put them behind the eight ball, nonsense or not. Uh, they definitely are not in the driver's seat any longer with regard to their playoff positioning. So a little frustrating for sure. Uh, although that Jets come back on Friday night, that was a lot of fun. Had people talking on Saturday. Well, a shootout's always fun. Well, you're down four nothing. You don't expect to make it to a shootout. Were they down four nothing? Yeah. They were down four nothing. They a scored lot of people a goal. Shut the TV off. I think. And oh went to yes, the head. absolutely. Yeah. And I think the optimism that was created Friday night lived on last night. Uh, lots of folks saying, "Okay, we got them right where we want them at three nothing." Were the Islanders, but uh, Jets didn't manage to. Patrick Line got his first goal last night, but the Jets fell. 4-1 last night. That defense. You think the Blue Bomber quarterbacking situation is dire? The situation on the Winnipeg Jet Blue Line is ugly. Uh, Josh Morrissey got injured in the warm-up last night, oh, so God. they went with six players who I don't. I don't think we're in the Jets lineup other than uh, than than Dmitry Kulikov. I don't think anybody was in their lineup last year. I'd have to go through it. It was bad. Just bad. Anyway, lots of sports talk, lots of weather talk, and lots of other things going on. It is uh, it is the day of the debate. The day of the debate. Yes. Is, is that what we're going to put, call it on the calendar? <laughs> the, Monday, October 7th is the, the day, day of, of the, the debate. The- well, finally, I think, you know, like it's been a, it's been slugging away at this campaign trail for weeks now. The election's still, what, two weeks away. And so tonight's a chance to kind of see if, you, if I don't think there's that many undecided out there, but there might be a few people on the fence in terms of they're still going to go the way they wanted it to go. So for me, it's always a chance. I like the debates, not necessarily for what's said, but how people act. And this has become a real campaign of, just that, right? About how we feel about someone, not necessarily about what they're saying. Yeah, and I was looking at the Global News, uh, there's a Global News Facebook post uh, just sort of uh, promoting that this or the debate is happening. And I was actually kind of heartened to see a lot of people posting like fiery, passionate comments about what they're hoping to see. And uh, although there's a lot of fear that the moderators are going to be too ballot or too biased towards some of the candidates. But uh, yeah, the pay, the the post here on Global News that went up on October 3rd promoting this, I don't, there's, it's got like 10,000 likes, and I don't know how many comments here. Uh, but uh, it's good to see, because I, I was sort of feared that there would just be apathy on this, and clearly there is not. And when you've got, all, when you've got six leaders involved tonight, hopefully it is worth your time. Are you going to watch, McNabb? 
I'll watch for sure. I, I, I'll try to watch the whole thing. And it's not because of my hours. I, I do find that it's hard to digest these sometimes. You know, we talked after the provincial debate, Brett, about how the, the real loser in it all was the public watching because he didn't feel like he learned anything. It's a lot of talking over one another. So you'll get a sense, I think, within the first 15 minutes of how that format's going to work with the various moderators, with all the candidates. And if you're going to actually be able to hear anything or get anything out of it. But it, the good news is it runs from 6 until 8, and it's also being aired on CJOB. And so if you're driving, you can tune in. If you're at home, you can obviously tune in. And it's not going too late. Like some of those debates, especially in America, right? It's like 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. And you're like, is this over yet? Like, <laughs> but with this one, I think is uh, you could sit down and have supper and turn it off by 8 and, and have a decision made, I think. Six participants. I think it's going to be pretty tough for anybody to stand out. I think we can all agree the the standout this past weekend was J- Jugmeet Singh. Oh, I've heard, I I I have seen a lot of people on social media talk about how, you know, if they were voting, if they could vote for the leader, that he would get their vote, but they're voting for their MP, right? And they're riding. And I've also seen a lot of tweets, particularly after he made those comments about drinking water, safe drinking water on First Nations communities. A lot, a lot of people saying this is the promise that Trudeau made to us, you know, mm-hmm. four years ago. He was supposed to come through for First Nations, Indigenous people, and many people think he hasn't. And so I'm curious to see where some of those votes go to and if, if Jagmeet, how he's acting for sure has people talking. I don't know if there's enough out there who still think he has what it takes to run the country, but he's, cer- he's certainly likable. Oh, definitely. I think he's the most likable of all of them. He's the snazziest dresser for sure. I mean, and that would, that would, that kind of stuff wins people, wins votes, oh, yeah. right? People like their name. People like the way they look. People like the colors they wear. Uh, but he's certainly come off as the friendliest of everybody here. And uh, just also a heads up before we forget, and we'll mention this throughout the show, I'm sure, but because the debate is on no coaches show tonight. No sports show with Christian mm. Lamel tonight mm. because there will be a post uh, post game of sorts after the debate. Richard Cloutier hosting a debrief from eight until nine on CJOB. Have no. Would fear. you say O'Shea gets off lucky there, Greg? Then yes, in the sense say, of yes, yeah, yes, and uh, you know I think. Uh, Kyle Walters is maybe under the gun here. We have the CFL trade deadline tomorrow. Uh, the Bombers bring in a quarterback. What are they prepared to do to bring in another quarterback? Uh, some of it maybe just to appease the fans, but I think you might have to do that on some level. I- I'm not exactly sure. I was talking to Kelly in the newsroom this morning and said that I don't know who's under more pressure right now, Kyle Walters to get a quarterback or Kevin Dayoff to get a defenseman. Hey, the Blue Bombers find themselves looking up in the standings following a disappointing 21-6 loss in Regina on Saturday. I forget what word you used, Loren. What was that again? Say that again. Nonsense. nonsense. All nonsense. Pure nonsense. Here, here's some <laughs> more. Here's some more numbers to have you feeling that way, McNabb. The Bombers once upon a time had an eight and two record and alone in first place. Well, now they're nine and six, tied for second in the West with one fewer game to play than the first place Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the second place Calgary Stampeders, who also lost Saturday. By the way, Calgary fell to Montreal in the early game, which opened the door for the Riders and the Bombers to claim sole possession of first place with the win. The door opened wide and the Rough Riders walked straight through to first place with their ninth win in their last 10 games. Their only loss since July 6th is their loss here in Winnipeg at the Banjo Bowl. The Blue Bombers, meanwhile, have lost four of their last five, three games left for the Blue and Gold. And first isn't impossible, but absolutely improbable. This coming Saturday, Montreal is here, and then Winnipeg plays Calgary back-to-back. Here's quarterback Chris Strevler, who had a rough night. Discouraged isn't the word. I'm obviously disappointed that we didn't execute the way that we wanted, but I'm not discouraged about the team that we have or the opportunities that we have coming up to close out the season, you know. We have a great team, and I believe in everyone in this locker room. And, um, you know, I mean, we just got to put it together. And I'm not discouraged. I'm just disappointed. Now, Strevler threw for 254 yards, uh, 26 of 40, but two key interceptions. The defense did all they could to keep the Blue Bombers in the game. Here's Adam Bighill. He echoes those sentiments. Yeah, I think we were able to limit a lot of things they wanted to do offensively. And, you know, we got after Cody and it made him uncomfortable back there. Um, You know, I mean, it was a defense battle all the way through. Um, You know, at the end, uh, you know, they made one tackle miss and zero coverage. And, you know, those things happen 
I mean, at the end of the day, I think we played solid football on defense. Last word to head coach Mike O'Shea. Did you feel you were a bit unlucky tonight? No. You you got you to gotta work hard out in the field and, and create your own, and I thought we worked extremely hard, and, and we just, you know, I thought we had chances to, with hands-on footballs, and, um, you know, I think one of the things we need to do is strip the ball out a little more. I don't know that we forced any fumbles, really. More positives than negatives, if that's possible in a loss? Well, like I said, I liked our compete level. I like that was that pretty impressive. You heard Bob Irving along with head coach Mike O'Shea in that clip. Coach and Bob Irving are preempted by the leaders' debate tonight, so no coaches show. Bob will pop, pop in at 8.45 to talk with us. More about what the Bombers will need to do in the last three weeks of the regular season. Where does he see them finishing as we head toward the playoffs? Loren McNabb, what do we have coming up after Global News at 6.30? Well, we're going to play some audio that really got some traction this weekend for a question that Jagmeet Singh was asked about water on First Nations communities and the question he put back to the rest of Canada about why they seem to have such a problem with this. It's uh, quite the exchange. All right, Mackling, what's coming up in sports? No Bifuglian, no Morrissey. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I would say. (laughs) Bifuglian. Bifuglian. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Fortier is here. I believe Jeff Braun is He's making on the his way. way in. He's, He's coming on in. The way. Yeah. So we want to talk right now about the weather. I mean, Greg, you you outlined it earlier. What are all all the things bringing us down right now? Well, you got the you got the Jets' loss last night. The Bombers' loss on Saturday night. If not for that comeback Friday night in New Jersey, it would have been a real rough weekend for sports teams in Winnipeg because the ice lost on home ice Friday and Saturday. So they didn't score a goal in two games. So, you know, it's been a rough few days on the sports scene and we know how Manitobans sort of live and die with their teams. And then the weather was terrible because the other thing we love in Manitoba is getting outside. And this is, uh, for a lot of folks, the the last weekends. It was sunny at supper time for about five minutes. What are you complaining about? That was yesterday, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I ran outside and then was quick deterred and it started raining again so what are you going to do I, I went out and uh, shut down the patio for the season anyway I thought to heck with it what, now, now see here's the thing like I've got the umbrella still up and I've got the uh, fabric canopy on the gazebo up. It's soaking wet. I'm scared to put it away in fear of it, it getting ruined over yeah, the weekend. Yeah, so what, what's idea. your strategy? Well, I always just, uh, we've got a, a hard shell for ours. So I just kind of stack everything up, then put a tarp over it okay. and uh, cover it up that way. But I always wait for Thanksgiving weekend to do that. Correct. And uh, Thanksgiving, um, I guess the explanation I'm going with or how I'm trying to make myself feel better is Thanksgiving's a little later this year, so (laughs) I'm, I I was... Like three days. (laughs) Loren, don't ruin the moment! Like my, yard, my yard is so wet, I couldn't get into it. I mean, I can if I put on rubber boots, but it's ridiculous to even step into. So it's not even a question of, yeah, all that stuff has to be put away, but I don't want to go in there and look at it. It's depressing and awful. Depressing and awful. Yeah, the weekend was all, was brutal yesterday, and it was weird seeing this. The sun popped out for a couple of minutes. I was yeah. visiting my dad in Transcona at around 2 o'clock. The sun popped its head out for a couple of minutes, and I tried to go for a walk, I think around 5 o'clock, because I saw it wasn't raining. Went outside. It was cloudy and gloomy and still wet, uh, and within three minutes, it started raining again, so... I turned back around and went home because I didn't bring an umbrella. I didn't know how hard it was going to rain. Yeah. And then the sun popped out. Uh, unfortunately, my apartment faced west. So when the sun set is in view, it just comes through my window like a fireball. Uh, so I have to had to close my blinds. Uh, and I thought, sure, you, now you come out. <laughs> now you come out when I've hunkered down for the yeah. evening. Just frustrating. But anybody, like, so does it affect your mood? Does it affect any of your moods when it's... Cloudy and gloomy like this for a long time. I, I will love say it. it's it, well. I was going to say it's great napping weather. Yep, great napping weather. Great TV weather. I stayed in my pajamas all day yesterday. Didn't even open the door once. Watch a lot of stuff. <laughs> wow, that'd be a good day. You didn't have to talk to anybody. Not for, at all. I read wow. a book on the weekend and. So is wonderful. that because it's guilt-free? Like you don't feel like you, you can't go outside or you don't, don't want to go outside? I don't feel that sort of guilt anyways, but yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to clean my windows before uh, winter comes, so I'll do that today. Yeah, I uh, 
I was so looking forward or so hopeful that this fall would be better than last year. September, October were brutal yeah. last year. I mean, and of course, I know it's annoying. I gauge everything on golf. But in, in September, October 2017, I played 20 rounds of golf because the weather was great. And last year, I think I got out four times. And this fall, I think I was out three times in September, maybe even twice. Well, by this time a year ago, I, I remember we had snow on the ground. Because our uh, our youngest daughter and her husband came out for a visit, and they took our grandkids down to Fort White, and they had to bundle them up because there was snow, and that was the like early October, around the second or third. So hey, it's better. We don't have snow here yet. That is true. That is true. But we might, looking at the long term forecast, uh, Environment Canada, for example, saying <sighs> Friday, snow or rain on Friday, periods of rain or snow Friday night. So. We might. I mean, who knows? The forecast could change. <laughs> Mackling is sinking just another <laughs> inch with every word that's coming out of our mouth. You know, I used to live in BC, and so this is like winter weather. BC's in, not any better right now. In just, Vancouver, yeah. this is winter weather in the Okanagan, and so I didn't like it there. One of the reasons I came back was because I am one of those people that does like sunshine and minus 20. I can deal with it better than I can the dark and gloominess. This last few weeks has been really tough to to deal with. But I do want to say for all the complaining, I just feel so bad for the farmers right Mm. now. Yeah, no kidding. Let me try to make you feel better, though, Greg. Okay, please. Because I was thinking about this, too, myself. I was thinking, hey, you know what? Right now we're experiencing Vancouver weather. But we don't have to be living in an eight hundred or eight hundred thousand or one million dollar house to, to get there. Like we're still, you know, we still have, you know, Winnipeg uh, uh, cost of living. Okay. In in a Vancouver climate. Okay. And maybe you're spending less because you can't go outside to do anything. Lots so of good shows real? on TV, folks. <laughs> hey, I think this text from a listener says it best that part of the problem is that you can only say, "Well, it's just the weather." So often, mm-hmm. she says, "A decent fall is vital." to mentally preparing for the horrific winter to come. <laughs> and being screwed out of fall just means there are precious days of decent weather we won't get back. And I think that's true, right? November, I think, has the least amount of sunshine of all the months, or it's one of the fewer sunshiny months. And so when you're already like halfway or a quarter way through October, and it's been like this. But right now, Loren McNabb, we're going back to school. We're going back to school, and I think we all know that Manitoba's education system is currently under review, and we're expecting in the next couple of weeks results from that and where that might take us with our K-12 system. So when we have these conversations, we kind of want to share with you what other provinces or jurisdictions are doing, specifically New Brunswick. They just completed their own review, and the Department of Education announced there last week it's looking at a whole bunch of changes including the elimination of grades in the younger years in elementary school. As Globin's Megan Yamo explains, the message is teachers should be focusing on the child's ability, not their age. The provincial government is asking the public for suggestions on how to build a world-class education system here in New Brunswick to compete with the elite class of scholars emerging from the East. The rise of countries like China and India, the rise of high-skilled, low-cost labour, These are things that affect New Brunswick. The Department of Education and Early Childhood Development has released a green paper titled Succeeding at Home to guide suggestions. These are the words that I heard from teachers across the province in visits to dozens of schools, conversations with hundreds of teachers and principals. The green paper says children develop profoundly differently, so they want to eliminate elementary grades and replace them with what they call flexible learning environments. I think there's something to be said for children being around children the same age as well in maturity wise emotion wise and I think that the system that we have has been working the government also wants to reintroduce skilled labor and trades programs to high school curriculum which the minister says will require a large increase in funding for new equipment in between 2018 and 2027 there's going to be 9144 job openings in the construction sector alone We have kids who say that's what they want to learn, and we're not giving them the opportunity. For more feedback, the provincial government will host a summit later this month about the teaching environment in classrooms. The New Brunswick Teachers Association says they'll be there. We heard the Premier say that all of the issues and challenges in the system are on the table, so we're really looking forward to having some discussions about that. 
Cardi says a key initiative will be developing educational partnerships so all students have an opportunity to learn real-world skills. The changes will be introduced as early as the 2021 school year and will continue through 2030. Megan Yamoa, Global News, Fredericton. So someone who attended school in uh, grade two and grade three in a combined or mixed class, uh, both those years as well as grade four and grade five. Lorraine, I don't know if you have any experience with that. I thought it was great because we were allowed to work at our own pace. Uh, we got the benefit of helping some of the younger kids when that was applicable to work through some of their issues. And uh, being around the older kids when you were younger gave you a little bit of motivation to keep up. I, I really liked that model of education and that's going back 45 years it was something that was being tried out here in Manitoba to a certain extent I kind of like this I think it depends on where your kid is at or where you're at I know in in many classrooms they're now doing you know one two split or a three four split and so you'll have like both those combined learning experiences I'm not sure about the idea of eliminating grade levels at all like I still think there's that challenge and that stigma out there that if you're x age like if you're eight years old you're supposed to be in grade three or you know I just I don't know how that will help someone to say okay well now I'm 10 and I'm supposed to be in grade five but I'm working at a grade three level and I get that that might be helpful to the kid it's just gonna be really hard for that child to not be with his peers like I could see both sides of the argument there and well and what would be worse for a student to be just held back like for a student to go through grade two for example and then they say you know what you got to do it over again I mean, but if there is no grade two then that's not an issue well that's my question if you so is that worse or is it better or is it worse to combine the two so you have a, a grade one and two or a two and three or whatever i i don't know i don't know what you would i don't know what they would call it then though because there still would have to be a level that you're at and so what what cuz every parent still at the end of the day wants to know well where's my kid at what level are they reading at what and it can be like are they you know you can change the language but my question would still be okay are, are they at where they're supposed to be for their age it removes some of the benchmarks so i can i can hear the bigger argument i just don't know if i could grasp it as a mom or a dad when my kids finish that year well hang on are they ahead or behind and if the answer is just going to be like well they're right where they're supposed to be for them that, I don't know if that helps me. You're there, you're, no doubt there will be some people who complain about this and say, oh, it's just a bunch of hippy-dippy garbage. Why don't we, let's just call it grade rainbow and grade unicorn. And uh, oh, what, what grade is yours, child, in? Oh, marshmallow. See, I, like, I think it's on the other side. I think this allows your kids to work at their own pace, to work ahead. And if, they, and if they're at another level, I'm a big fan of the Khan Academy, and that's an online learning tool, and it's all based on the work. And if you can complete the assignments, you keep working at your own pace. If you need help, that's where the teacher directs their energy is on the kids who are not keeping up in the assignments. I I think there's a lot of positives here. It's certainly not like there's other schools throughout North America that have tried it or in the process of doing it or have adapted some sort of hybrid system. So there's other places to learn from. I think it's a good question for educators here. What are we looking at? And maybe we need to stop looking at all these test results every year to decide how smart or not smart we are and look at the individual. All right, and Greg, we want to start this half hour once again by talking about water. Yeah, plenty of discussion over the weekend about NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and his stand on clean drinking water for First Nations in Canada. Singh held a press conference in Grassy Narrows, Ontario on Saturday, and when asked if he was just writing a blank check for all problems faced by Indigenous communities, such as a lack of clean drinking water, he had this to say. The PBU has, has made it very clear that it's not been a priority because they haven't put up enough funding to get it done. We will get it done because we believe it's a priority and we will put the money in place to make sure it happens. Mike Lucature with Global National. Uh, further to Kevin's point, are you just writing a blank check for all problems for all in- Indigenous communities across the country once you get into office? So if Toronto had a drinking water problem, if Montreal had a drinking water problem, would you be asking the same question? It's a lot of money, is what I'm saying. And people will look at it and go, how much money are we going to spend on all this? And how are you you going to find that money? That's a genuine question. Would you be asking this question if if Vancouver did not have clean drinking water? Would you be asking this question if Edmonton did not have clean drinking water? 
No, you wouldn't. And that's what I'm saying. Why is it that we ask the question about whether or not Indigenous people should have clean drinking water? We've got to take a minute and think, why is that even a question? Yes, they deserve clean drinking water. Yes, we can make it happen. It's a matter of priority, and I'm going to do it. Sheila North is a director at University College of the North in Thompson, former MKO chief and leader in the Indigenous community, and joins us now. Good morning, Sheila. Good morning. What did you think of Jagmeet Singh's response? I think I think it was very uh, a welcome, I guess, new uh, attitude towards Indigenous people during this particular election. But I also have to say also that the question by the reporter is also reflective of what really society thinks. And so it's not a surprise that question comes out. And in fact, he probably felt emboldened to ask that because that's what a lot of uh, a lot of Canadians actually think and feel. Why do you think that is, Sheila? Is it an out of sight, out of mind philosophy? Or is there really a big question of, of the price tag that's attached with so many things in election promises? Well, I guess it's a few things. There's, there's always been a disdain for Indigenous people, it seems, for, for many generations now. And I think it, it's just gotten worse. But, you know, Indigenous people are also getting very aware and astute, especially with the era of social media, that uh, these kind of questions are are now starting to be uncomfortable because a lot of people are speaking out against those kind of attitudes. So it, it seems startling in, in some ways because of that. But at the same time, it's also reflective of, you know, how much further we have to go. Even the journalists are reflecting what society actually thinks and feels, of course. Didn't Justin Trudeau make this exact same pledge in 2015? And and Loren outlined the fact that we have seen some movement in terms of reduced number of communities under boil water advisories. But, But how far have we come and how far do we have to go, Sheila? Well, that's exactly it. You know, when I listen to a lot of people are, are starting to turn to the NDP and nationally and saying that they're actually, you know, a better hope and greater hope. I, I think back four years ago and people felt even more so, I think, felt that way about uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals and look at where we are now. So, you know, it, it begs to to question, like, how, how really are parties committed to Indigenous issues? In the end, they will do what's best for a mass, you know, group of Canadians, which also says we have to change as a society. I think it's a societal problem. And when you look at the history of the NDP in Manitoba, the reason why they got out is because, you know, a a lot of Indigenous people lost a lot of hope in them. And they didn't actually, you know, improve the lives of Indigenous people in this province when they were in power for a good good decade. So uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, um, skepticism still. Sheila, Justin Trudeau made the promise uh, four years ago, Jagmeet Singh now making the promise, but I mean, it's easy for him to make the promise, but is it realistic for him to, to assume that he can follow through on said promise? Well, I'm I'm hoping that they'll make a good effort, but at the same time, again, I'm, I'm skeptical because I think the real commitments have to be in working and collaborating with Indigenous uh, leaders and communities, and I think that move would say a lot more because then you're starting to create plans that actually work for people because the policies and programs that are being doled out by any government that's in power will never work for the long term for Indigenous people because that's not what we want. Uh, um, one example is, is the area of housing. In the 60s and 70s, it was women from the communities who decided who which which family got houses and it's because they knew the community intimately that power was taken away and just given to the bureaucrats and and you know the band council office and now we're seeing such great shortages of housing and so you know it, it was community led before and and it has to get back that way if we're going to see real changes in the communities and and a real uh, real collaboration and real reconciliation in this country you mentioned, Sheila, the hope that you had four years ago and that you think that perhaps the attitudes towards Indigenous people have only worsened since. Uh, what, what's making you feel that way? Is it just the comments we heard over the weekend or the reporter's question? Or is it there's, some, there's just something bigger going on that you feel is at play that's contributing to that, I don't want to say hopelessness, but that feeling that, that things haven't improved as you'd like to think they have? 
Well, I guess there's a mixture of, of feelings. You know, people asked me four years ago when I was newly Grand Chief at the time, and I said I was cautiously optimistic, and other leaders I remember were saying they're super optimistic, and I guess I felt that because, um, and, and now, I, because I, I don't feel that the effort in, in propping up parties anymore is the way to go for Indigenous people. We have to, you know, break away in, in a meaningful way that that really starts to uphold those partnership deals that were made with Indigenous people and new Canadians back in the day. And I think, you know, it seems like a foreign concept, but it's doable and it's practical. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't want to discourage people from not voting. And I probably vote in the end, although I don't know who I'll vote for yet. But I think we also have to remember to keep pushing towards a, a different future, a better future, because I don't think anybody wants to to have, you know, this feeling of Indigenous people, but it's there because it's been reinforced by the the problems caused by the policies and programs that have been put in place by any government. Sheila, before we let you go, just one more thing. What would the value be? What is the the value of following through on these promises? And there are multi-levels to them, but just on the water uh, Promises and pledges, in particular, what does it, what does that mean to a community? Well, you know, water is access to clean drinking water is a basic human right. We all need it every single day, all day long, and and I think to deny people having access to that is just simply wrong and disturbing to even think that that they should wait. I've been to communities where there's bottles and bottles, like big jugs of bottled water that you would see on you know in fancy offices and stuff but in in reserves those are a necessity and they can't even wash their babies wash their faces brush their teeth without this kind of bottle and that's creating more environmental problems because of all the plastic that's being wasted so you know this is just an example that uh, it seems that it's okay to treat Indigenous people as second-class citizens. And water is just an example. Housing and, and the lack of proper education is another one. And, and you know, even people are calling it an economic starvation, and, and that's what it is. I, I was in my home community all weekend this weekend, and I can't believe how much the graveyard, for example, has expanded so much since I lived there as a kid. And, and you know, I've heard that, you know, in the Indigenous people, we can probably go to a hundred funerals in our lifetime, whereas non-Indigenous people can probably go to ten. Right now, in our community, there's four deaths that are that our community is dealing with. So, you know, these are the realities that our our people are facing, and and it's just it's just wrong. Sheila North, director of University College of the North, is former MKO chief leader in the Indigenous community, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Sheila, thank you for the time, as always. Thank you. Not every hero wears a cape. What does that have to do with? Well, we're talking about fire prevention safety this week and that you don't want to wait for that hero to come into home. You want to have a plan in place. But that's the question we're asking our listeners this morning. If you were to wake up in the middle of the night or smell it from your basement in the morning and smell smoke, do you have a plan in place to get you or your family out of the house safely. Assistant Chief Mark Rishauer is with the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service and joins us now to discuss. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm curious, when your crews arrive on scene, which we know is a daily occurrence to a fire somewhere in the city, when people have escaped that fire, are they saying that they got out by luck or did the bulk of them actually have a plan in place when it came to getting out of that fire in their home safely? Many of them have a plan in place. We've been working very hard for a number of years to make sure that people understand the importance of having a home family fire escape plan so that when an emergency happens, they're not trying to figure it out then. They've got a plan and they can react quickly to it. Are there some tools that uh, certain folks and certain styles of houses might uh, consider purchasing, Mark? I'm thinking of a, a collapsible or a foldable ladder that you might hand hang out of your window if you've got a two-story house, things like that. Yeah, it's vital that we plan to have two ways out of every room in our home. So if you're on the second floor of your home and your alternate means of escape is a window, uh, one option is to hang from it and drop to the ground. The other option is to have a collapsible ladder or a fire, a fire escape device of some sort that you can purchase. 
How important is it for somebody like me, for example? I just moved into a high-rise. I'm on a 16th floor. Uh, getting out the window for me, I mean, I don't, I don't have enough sheets in my bedroom to tie up to get me down to the ground. No, those of us that live in uh, apartment buildings need to know two ways out of the building. So there should be a stairwell at the end, each end of the hallway, so that when you exit your suite, you can go to one stairwell. If that area is blocked by smoke, you can go the opposite way to the other stairwell and exit the building that way. When it comes to these plans, it's one thing to say to have it, Mark. It's another to put it into action. How hard is that in the moment without having practiced it or talked about it with your kids to execute? If you're surrounded by smoke or the flames are, you know, licking at the door, putting that plan into an action is a big difference as, than just well, having one. The, the idea of having a plan is, is to get out of the house before the flames are licking at the door. Uh, a fire safety plan allows you to respond rapidly and in a planned way to escape the house. What you'll do is you'll plan two ways out of every room. If you have young children in the house, you'll have planned which adult is going to be assisting which child, and you'll have a meeting place outdoors. It's vital that everybody goes to the meeting place so that everybody can be accounted for, and that when the fire paramedic service arrives on scene, if somebody isn't accounted for, we hear about it right away. I've seen uh, folks who will have uh, hardwired smoke detectors and, and carbon dioxide detectors, and then the battery starts to go, and then that detector gets very annoying, and folks will take out the battery, and they will disengage those detectors for an extended period of time. Just how bad an idea is that, Mark? You know, it's a horrible idea. Um, our homes today, the way we're building them, with synthetic materials, lightweight construction, they burn faster, they, they generate more heat, and they generate far more toxic gases in the smoke. It's vital to have an early warning system in your home. If your smoke alarm starts to chirp and it's got a sealed battery, it's time to replace it. If your smoke alarm starts to chirp and it has a replaceable battery, you need to replace that battery right away. But you should never, ever uh, remove a smoke alarm from your home because the smoke alarms provide you with the early warning that you need to escape before it's too late. We used to do fire drills all the time in school, just random fire drills where suddenly the alarm would go off and we got to get out. Is Should families be taking that mentality where someone in the family says, just decides, okay, it's time for a fire drill. Everybody get up. Let's go. Yes, yes, we need to practice these escape plans, especially with our children, because if we haven't gone through the motions ahead of time, the children will not know what to do when the emergency actually strikes. We want the kids to automatically respond. We don't want them to be trying to figure it out on their own. So by rehearsing it and rehearsing it a couple times a year, the children learn to have a positive attitude towards it. They take it seriously and they're not trying to figure something out at the time of an emergency. Instead, they're doing exactly what you've taught them to do. Assistant Chief Mark Richard with the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service joining us live for Fire Prevention Week. Mark, thank you for this. We appreciate it, sir. And thank you very much. Right now, we want to start by talking about car insurance. Yeah, and hearings to determine how much you will pay in car insurance next year start in just under an hour. But the Public Utilities Board isn't just looking at how much you might pay. They're looking at whether or not you'll soon be able to pay for some of those car insurance services online. As it stands right now, Manitobans have to visit an MPI insurance broker in person, but it's possible that could change. Grant Winnicott is the CEO of the Insurance Brokers Association of Manitoba and joins us now. Good morning, Grant. Good morning. Tell us, how, how does the system work right now and what's at stake for your folks in terms of what might change in the months ahead? Certainly. Well, I would say in Manitoba, we have some things that uh, consumers here can do online. For instance, you can uh, pay your reassessments and uh, th- things of that nature. But really, we haven't evolved very, very, very far down the road with regard to online service delivery. And we at IBAM really celebrate it. We want to do this. We are looking forward to working with MPI to moving services online. Uh, we believe that the model that should be put in place here in Manitoba should emulate that 
uh, model that is in place in our neighboring province of Saskatchewan, which uh, puts the broker at the center of that online experience, as opposed to the government going direct to consumers and opening up a retail type of relationship with end consumers. Grant, I think there's a perception that uh, insurance brokers of Manitoba are against this move. So what you're saying is you're not against it, it's just how it's implemented? Uh, it precisely, uh, that's well said. And the, the, this has been conflated from the get-go. And basically, there's a difference between offering services online and the government offering you services online directly. And it is the latter that we are opposed to. And the reason for that is we believe that it there are cus- consumer protection issues at play we believe that it impacts consumer choice. We believe that uh, customer service will be impacted. The DMV is almost parodied uh, if you look at Saturday Night Live or like shows like that. And so we're concerned about the service level that Manitobans are going to get. And when we're purchasing insurance, this is uh, it's not really exciting for everybody, I know, but it can be life-changing if you make the wrong decisions. And these are not, uh, not decisions that consumers should go into lightly. And so therefore, we, we believe that consumers need the protection of a broker. But Grant, to be fair, if MPI does take more control of online services and you don't get what you're looking for with with the broker as the main source or main person conduit, so to speak, there's a loss of jobs on the line. And that some might listen to this and think, well, maybe the broker's group is just trying to protect themselves because if we move online and take some of those services away, that impacts your industry. Certainly. Uh, Certainly, uh, we are at at IBAM. We're here to protect uh, the broker channel as well as the consumer. Um, one of the uh, one of the interesting uh, pieces of this is that there are 2,600 people that work across Manitoba uh, for for small business insurance brokers, um, and we give over three. These brokers give over three million dollars a year to local community charities, and so there is a social impact. There is certainly an economic development impact, not to mention the service impact of moving service delivery away from small businesses to the government. And one of the arguments that we might hear from MPI is that this somehow is going to be more efficient or there's going to be cost savings at play. And uh, if, if, if one believes that we can move a model from small business delivery into one of central government delivery and, uh, and save money, uh, I would say we have some oceanfront property in Saskatchewan to sell you. One of the questions that's going to be asked uh, from the Consumers Association of Canada, is it prudent and reasonable for MPI to include a minimum compensation guarantee of $71 million annually in its agreement with brokers? What would you say to that? I would say that we're happy to see that go. Uh, That $71 million minimum was put in place several years ago uh, as a result of moving to a five-year renewal uh, uh, process. It was was there to sort of ensure the continuance and viability of the distribution channel. It is no longer relevant, uh, so that minimum threshold has been surpassed by way of inflation and transaction counts and consumer counts and so on several years ago, so it's, it's not relevant at all. And by the way, IBAM is not seeking a minimum uh, threshold uh, uh, as it is today either. That's not that's not on our agenda at this stage. You know, if we all agree, and I know we don't, but it, it, let's pretend that we did, that MPI is is the right way to, to deliver uh, this product to automobile insurance in our province. Would, would, would we not, this is the way I've seen it, at least uh, Grant for, for a long time, is the idea that MPI or any crown corporation ask, act as much as like a private corporation, either in terms of pursuance of, of profit, uh, customer service, and the way they do things in the community. If MPI takes us all over, are we not taking uh, away one of those those staples uh, of good uh, community corporate governance and, and action? Certainly, um, and the reason why we have regulations in this area, in Manitoba and elsewhere, is to prevent what I'll call scope creep of, of a monopoly. And what we see here is a classic example of that, where MPI appears to, and by the way, they have not uh, uh, definitely said which way they want to go, but it appears as though they're at the very, at a very, at the very minimum contemplating a direct-to-consumer model. And we see that as just empowering a monopoly even more and, and, and putting more of a disparity between uh, the, the, the company here that is owned by Manitobans and with individual Manitobans who, who, uh, who are compelled and forced to do business with that monopoly. Graham Weineke, CEO of the Insurance Brokers Association of Manitoba, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Grant, thank you for the time. Thank you.
what are you going to do over the next couple of days to enjoy the nice weather before it cools off again? A couple of like-minded spirits on this saying, I'm going to golf one more game because I think that's what I'm going to do. I don't even feel like it, but I feel like this is it. Because looking at the long-term forecast, like... Uh, don't do that. Four, I, I see four Just degrees. Just look at four, today, Brett. Three. Today looks good. Well, that's my point. I have to because I can't wait until (laughs) there there is, as Apollo Creed once said, there is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. (laughs) Well, there is tomorrow, but I'm busy until one o'clock because I got I'll be on location at Superlube tomorrow until one o'clock. So I probably won't have time. So today is the day. Looks like it. So comment on our Facebook post for your chance to win tickets for Miranda Lambert. Loren McNabb, Brian Barkley actually sent uh, me and Greg a message asking about the floodway. Have you heard mm-hmm. anything about the floodway being open? Well, I can imagine if you've been driving over it in the last few days, it definitely will have water in it just from all the rain. But it had us wondering, did the floodway go into operation over the weekend? We know that the province put out a warning of a high water advisory for areas like the White Shell, uh, places in southern Manitoba. And we know we saw La Brokery with some issues there, St. Mallow Provincial Park, lots of places where people have seasonals trying to get their campsites off or flooded with several inches of water over the last few days. But to answer the question on the floodway, if you're seeing water in it, it's just rainwater. It is not open at this point. I've sent a note out to the province and they said, no, it still hasn't been operational. But the hydrologic forecast center, they say, is watching this potential cold front and Colorado low combo coming later this week, which could change things. So it's bizarre times to think that we're even asking the question this late into the fall about the floodway. And I hate saying Colorado low already. Colorado low. Well, they they have a snowfall warning in all of Alberta today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's to go into the overnight hours and tomorrow. Uh, expected high in the in the teens and and uh, maybe even twenty degrees in parts of Alberta today. And then tomorrow they could be getting more snow and snow tomorrow. So, well, as we know, we know enough about the weather around here to know that traditionally and typically, whatever happens in the west on Monday happens here. Wednesday or Thursday, so the the forecast is kept keeping up to that. Although the the forecast for the snow on Environment Canada's weather uh, site and website is a little bit different than the one that's showing up on my phone, which is showing four straight days of possible snow versus what they're saying at Environment Canada might be a little bit of snow, mix of snow and rain. Uh, we probably won't know exactly what's going to happen until we get to that day of the week, unfortunately. Hopefully it's a little bit better. We got some text messages, uh, one from Joanne saying, I suffer from SAD, which is, what is a seasonal, seasonal effect. affective disorder? Affective yeah, disorder, I actually you. put a note out to the Mood Disorders Association last night because they give out those lamps, you know, that you can rent and you can get that are you know, kind of like ultraviolet lights that help you if you are impacted by seasonal affective disorder. And I know the last time, a couple of years ago in the fall, when it was super bad, we had that terribly cloudy November and they were seeing those things fly off the shelves. So I've asked them out of curiosity with this brutal September and October if they're seeing an uptick in that as well. But Joanne, Joanne made a good point, Brett. Yeah, she says it's going to be another long year. And Colorado Phil just texted us. This is a Manitoban who now lives in Colorado. He says, hey, gang, it's CJOB. It's me, Colorado Phil, listening to your team as usual from Thornton, Colorado. Don't blame me for the Colorado low. Not my fault. Look at our forecast in Celsius. Now get this. Tuesday, October 8th, 26 degrees. Mm-hmm. Wednesday, 27 degrees. Thursday, minus 2 with a oh uh, 90% chance of up to 5 centimeters of snow. Is that uh, ever a swing? Yeah, and then it goes, and then Friday, 9 degrees, and Saturday back up to 17. Yeah, that's life in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado for sure. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate that. Good to hear from you. Um, yeah, I'm usually jealous of the weather in Denver and that part of the world. It's usually pretty good, but it's not fun to fly through Denver probably seven or eight months of the year because they can get those dramatic swings in weather. And yeah, it's a little bit of a roll of the dice as to whether or not that airport's going to be open and one of the busiest airports in the world at that. So and Another thing, with, and Denver too, because of the way that airport is built and configured, it's fairly efficient. So they make their connection times super tight mm-hmm. to the point. point where I've only had, I think I've only ever had to go through it once. 
Uh, but I had heard their connections were tight. Like we're talking 30 minutes from when you land to were get Were you your running when you went oh, through? Yeah. I've had to run through that airport before. Yeah, we were running because uh, we weren't going to make it otherwise. So, yeah, it's a nice airport, but I didn't get to see any of it because I was too busy running. Although I felt like a Superman because I was on one of those... The movable, con- yeah. uh, the movable walkway. Yeah, so I was running <laughs> super fast down this conveyor belt. Uh, so that was fun. I once saw Carl Lewis in an American airport and I challenged him to a race. I said, I, I said, I'm going to run on the moving walkway and then you run on the, on the regular floor. He just, he waved me off. Really? He wanted did you punk. actually do that? Oh, of course I did. You know me for how long now, Brett? Of course I did. <laughs> do you think he'd win in that scenario still? Of course I, he'd win running like the backwards. Oh, the backwards. I thought you were just going to both go forward. Oh, and no. you would be on the movable, like the moving sidewalk. He would still beat me going forward. And if he turned around and ran backwards, he would still beat me <laughs> even after all these years. He was one of the, you know, we, we want to talk about whether he was a cheater or not, but he was one of the fastest men in the world for a long, long time. It was neat to see him. And uh, I don't know, I'd had uh, <clears throat> some liquid courage on the plane and decided to go and have a <laughs> chit chat with him. Anyway, uh, can we go from Colorado to New Brunswick? Yes. New Brunswick talking about some, I don't know, Loren, I would call them radical changes in terms of education. There's a proposal that just came out on Friday. They're doing a review there, as we're doing here. And some of the results of the review in New Brunswick are suggesting something dramatic with regard to early years education. Yeah, they're talking wide-sweeping education reform there. And the reason why we're keeping our eye on it, as you mentioned, Brett, is that we're looking at some of the same things here in the sense of what can we do to get our test scores up? What can we do to make the system better? And in New Brunswick, they're talking about actually removing grade levels in the early years education, so potentially in elementary school. So they want to focus on ability, not your age. So just because you're, say, six or seven doesn't mean you're supposed to be in grade one or two. It might mean that you're performing at a grade three level or a four level or a kindergarten level. And so they're really taking a serious look at something that's been tried, I know, in a few schools in the States, which is to say, let's not focus on our grade or our age, let's focus on where each individual child is at, which I'm sure is going to get all sorts of feedback out there. Three different text messages here, sort of on different spectrums of this topic. One person says, students do not fail grades in the younger years anymore. They are not held back until they reach the grades requiring credits. Another person says, do you think for one moment from grade six up that you don't know who are the smart ones and who aren't? And then this third one says they're making it kind of like university, the way students learn in that setting. And that I'm just sort of having flashbacks now to when I first went to university. And it was kind of weird. I guess it was a culture shock to walk into a class where there were people of all ages because I had gotten so used to just being with people who were my age. I I don't know that I expected to be in a room full of 318-year-olds, but it was weird sitting but next to a 40-year-old and mm-hmm. a 30-year-old, maybe a 50-year-old in the class. So Now imagine if you're five and you're next to a nine-year-old or six and next to a four-year-old, depending on where you're at. Like Those are big, those are big age gaps. The younger you are, the more those gaps feel huge, right? There's a big difference between a five and a seven-year-old, depending on their emotional maturity and all the rest. But another thing that they're looking at that is cool in New Brunswick is bringing back skilled labor and trades programs to high schools because the minister out there says they need to increase uh, the number of kids who are graduating with those skills because there's all sorts of jobs in those areas. And so there's something to be said about putting some more hands-on work in the classroom. For those who were not listening earlier this morning, Loren McNabb, how did you describe the football game? It was nonsense. There it Just is. a bunch of nonsense. A load of Tommy rot. Balderdash. What's that? What is Tommy Rod? It's um, it's uh, it's basically rubbish. It's a British okay. term. Yeah. I had to, I had to ter- first. I, it was on a show called Elementary, Sherlock Holmes, and he said it, so I had to back it up and turn on the subtitles. Oh sure. And then I had to Google it because I'd never heard it. I'm like, wow, that's a fancy term. I'm going to incorporate like that into my vocabulary because it's fun to say. Bob Irving, do you think you can slide the word Tommy Rot into one of your uh, <laughs> broadcasts? No, but it's a word uh, that goes way back and that I'm familiar with, and I know exactly what it means, and I know a lot of Bomber fans these days are thinking along the same lines as Loren after watching their favorite team go down to defeat yet again. So, Bob, where does this leave the Blue Bombers? I outlined it earlier this morning. Bombers are um, 
essentially in third place. They're tied for second, but Calgary has a game in hand on the Blue Bombers. Uh, Saskatchewan, first place. They've won nine of their last 10 games on 20 points to lead the West. Calgary, nine and five, lost to Montreal on Saturday afternoon, early evening on 18 points. And then the Bombers, with 15 games played, are on 18 points. So uh, do they have, have, have they essentially left Edmonton in the rearview mirror, or uh, can Edmonton still be a factor and a source of concern? for the Blue Bombers? Well, I don't think Edmonton can catch the Bombers, so they don't have their quarterback, and they're playing very poorly right now. Uh, I would say one thing about Sunday's game or Saturday's game in Regina. The, the Bombers came up with a tremendous effort, and Mike O'Shea was looking for a more committed, physical, hard-driving performance by his team, and he got that in every sense. Uh, if the Bombers don't turn the ball over in that game, they have every chance to win it and may well have won it. Their defense, I thought, played outstanding, which is a great sign because this defense, I think, uh, you know, can help them make some waves toward the end of the season. But their offense has just got to be more protective of the football. Chris Streveler had a tough outing. There's no question about that. And unless his play improves, and that's the Bombers have got their fingers crossed on that, you know, the quarterback makes a huge difference. Chris has to has to be better going forward, and if he can be, then I know a lot of the Bomber fans have written things off, but I think there's still hope. So are we talking about just a couple key plays there in your mind? If the effort was yep. there and the intensity was there, we're just talking about those moments, those turnovers that went the wrong way. Well, those turnovers all took potential points off the boards. Three, uh, three field goals at least, I think, if they don't turn the ball over in those situations. And the way the defense was playing, and I know the defense gave up a score at the end of the game, but they were trying to make an interception there and make a big play that they needed at that point. I don't think they'd have played it the way they did otherwise. But yeah, the turnovers made the difference in the game, in my opinion. When you get into scoring territory and come away with nothing three different times in four, if you count uh, one in the last two minutes of the game, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to win very often. And that, to me, that was the critical difference. But I saw a lot of good things, folks. I really did. Defensively, man, oh, man, did they come up and play hard, make some big plays. Uh, but on offense, man, they just can't turn the ball over like that. Protect the football the way Matt Nichols used to do. The one thing Matt did was he didn't give it away, and that goes a long way to helping you win a game. And it was just uh, it was a critical uh, situation in the game in Regina. Turning the ball over will always cause you trouble. Trade deadline on Wednesday, Bob. Any chance they're reconsidering their position on bringing in a quarterback? None. No chance. They're going to stick with. Chris Streveler and Sean McGuire, who's their backup, uh, that's not going to change. They don't feel there's anybody out there who could come in and immediate, who was prepared, let me put it this way, who is prepared to come in and who could immediately pick up the offense and run the team. They just don't feel that's a feasible option. And so they're going to go with Streveler and McGuire. Okay, so Bob, uh, Mike O'Shea off the hook for one day anyway. We're going to do the coaches show tomorrow night, 7 till 8, because tonight we have the coverage of the national leaders debate for the federal election. Can you do me a favor? Can you ask him, I know I mentioned it on Friday, but I spoke to more people about it on the weekend. If they're not prepared to go out and get another quarterback, and I'm going to take you at your word that that they're that's what they're going to do is stand pat. Can they not design some different plays involving some different players? And I'm speaking specifically of Nick Dembski and maybe more specifically, Johnny Augustine to highlight the fact that the running game is their best friend, but they continue to run this offense as though Matt Nichols is still the quarterback to a great extent. Well, first of all, you and I don't have time to debate this, Greg. I don't agree totally with what you have just said, but I will ask the coach a question along those lines and see what he says. I know what he's going to say, but to make you feel better, I will ask him that question, and we'll we'll see what he comes up with. Thank you, Bob. How's that? That was the nicest answer ever. No, Greg, that's wrong, but fine. I'll do it. (laughs) Bob Irving joining us live on CJOB. No coaches show tonight. We'll do it tomorrow because the debate is tonight. Bob, thanks for joining us, man. Okay, you bet. Late last night, Brett Loren, a press release from the White House 
is going to have ramifications halfway across the world. The White House says that Turkey will soon invade northern Syria, casting uncertainty on the fate of the Kurdish fighters allied with the U.S. against in a campaign against the Islamic State group, pardon me. Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham says U.S. troops will not support or be involved in the operation and, quote, will no longer be in the immediate area. Grisham says that after a call between U.S. President Trump and Turkish President Erdogan, Turkey will take custody of foreign fighters captured in the U.S.-led campaign against the Islamic State group who have been held by the Kurdish forces supported by the U.S. Global's Reggie Cicchini is in Washington. And Reggie, I don't know when you heard about this. It was about uh, 2.30 Central Time when uh, I noticed it. Uh, what's the word in Washington and, and what's the feeling there about this announcement? Yeah, I mean, this is a big foreign policy shift for the U.S. right now. I learned about it right around quarter to 11 last night when uh, the first press release came out from the press secretary. And I mean, over the last kind of 12 hours or so, this has really rattled members of the president's own party uh, who see this as a potential uh, backfiring move that could allow the so-called Islamic State to re-enter portions of Syria that the president says has been completely wiped out or believing that the caliphate is completely gone. Uh, some hawkish lawmakers, including Marco Rubio uh and uh, Lindsey Graham, when it comes to foreign policy, specifically in the Middle East, have both called the president out, saying that this is a dangerous move, that this is not likely uh, going to end well. Even the former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, without naming Trump, uh, decided to uh, weigh in to say, look, at the end of the day, uh, this this so-called wiping out of the caliphate in Syria happened because of Kurdish forces, and uh, the U.S. is now abandoning them. So this could potentially have some long-term negative ramifications for U.S. policy going forward. Forward. Well, you mentioned the Kurds have fought alongside U.S. forces for years to defeat ISIS. So that in many ways, this might be viewed as a betrayal in some circles. Absolutely. I mean, Kurdish forces, if they don't have the U.S. to back them up, uh, are likely going to eventually potentially have to line themselves up with the uh, Assad regime and the Syrian government uh, to try and ward off uh, any kind of looming or impending attack from Turkey. Now, look, Turkey's been at this for a long time. The Kurds have uh, for, for decades now been trying to either uh, create their own territory or simply uh, be designated as a, as, a, as a group by the Turkish government. So to have the U.S. back out, this also allows for a possible vacuum there that could be filled in by, uh, say, Russian forces to be able to move into the area and assist the Kurds. So going forward, uh, Republicans are not quite sure what the president's end goal here, other than a- an election campaign promise to pull people out of Syria. But there could be some ramifications that I don't even think the White House or the president himself has actually figured out yet. Reggie, there's been an alliance between the United States uh, military and Kurdish forces going all the way back to uh, the second invasion of Iraq. This has been a long-standing relationship, and American forces, uh, based on what I know, have a, a lot to be grateful for uh, when it comes to Kurdish rebels and the role they've played in, in not just one, but but several uh, several military operations. Uh, absolutely, and this is all, this all kind of you know goes back to what's happened as of recent with. Uh, uh, with Kurdish forces helping them uh, eliminate or at least you know shrink down the caliphate to nothing, uh, this wouldn't have happened without a, a U.S. kind of alliance with Kurdish forces and with Turkey now kind of telling the U.S., please step aside so we can do this, and the U.S. Uh, basically giving Turkey the right to go in. This is going to sour relations between Turkey uh, and the U.S. government. Members of Congress right now are already saying that this is going to be dangerous going forward, especially when it comes to any kind of potential NATO uh, uh, conversations uh, when it comes to the U.S. and Turkey. And I think that this is going to also put uh, some potential strain on what's happening between the U.S. and Iran, because this allows Iran to now uh, view America in a brand new negative light, uh, showing what they're doing to uh, potential allies in the area. And this could allow for Iran to increase their moves going forward. So uh, if the president believes that this might be in the U.S. best interest to get troops out of the region, uh, the rest of that volatile region may look at this as a betrayal and potentially make some kind of catastrophic move going forward. So where does the impeachment inquiry weigh in on this? And and is that factor in the decision of uh, I want to make good on some of my previous promises? Not as a distraction, I'm not suggesting that, 
potentially Reggie, but just how it kind of weaves together in some ways. Well, look, there are Democrats who have said since the day that the president took office that he's unqualified for the job and doesn't actually have a solid grip uh, on what's going on, whether it's with domestic policy or whether it's with foreign policy. We've seen uh, the president kind of bungle his way through uh, foreign issues when it comes to the United States and Democrats who are already looking at the president for uh, improper conversations when it comes to uh, how he's had discussions uh, with Ukraine, how he's had uh, public callouts with China. He may now look at this and say, well, why are we now giving in and bowing? to the Turkish government. I mean, there's some kind of flashback Fridays on a Monday happening with Twitter uh, showing uh, Ivanka Trump's tweets of saying, well, you know, congratulations on Turkey for having these new Trump towers uh, that are opening up in Istanbul. And I think this just provides more fuel for Democrats to say, look, this is a president who may be putting America's best interests to heart when he's trying to pull troops out of the region, but he may not understand the ramifications that are going to potentially involve America going forward, because if we end up with some kind of full-blown war, the U.S. is likely going to get drawn back into this, and it will be at the hands of the president. So this is going to aid and abet what Democrats are trying to say are the reasons that they want him removed from office. You mentioned Russia, but just briefly, Reggie, does this sit well with Vladimir Putin? Well, I mean, look, any time that the United States pulls out of somewhere and gives an opportunity for Russia to fill a void, uh, Putin is going to look at that and say that this is a, a, a great moment for them. You know, Russia's already had, uh, you know, a big presence in the Middle East. Uh, when you talk about things like uh, Afghanistan over uh, history and, and a history show. So this could be an opportunity for Vladimir Putin to say, well, look, let's show a strong hand right now. If the Kurds need help and America's not going to do it, they're certainly not going to get this help from Turkey. Maybe we can come in and they can uh, they can come back to us and we can hold that strong hand there because the Kurds have had to use Russian assistance in the past. This could be something that, you know, backfires and, and goes in the face of, of, of the United States interest in the Middle East now if Russia gains the upper hand. All right, Global's Reggie Cicchini joining us live on 680 CJOB from Washington. Reggie, thank you as always, sir. Anytime. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.